Well, good morning, City Church. Uh, my name is Andrew. I'm one of the elders here. Uh, it's been a while since I've greeted you from this position, and I'm really glad to get to do that this morning. Hope you all had a wonderful Christmas. If you can believe it, this is our last time to gather for 2019. Uh, next week begins 2020. Uh, if you're wondering uh, why Will is not up here, it's because uh, they had their baby girl yesterday, and they're all doing great. Um, and understandably, he scheduled me to fill in. Uh, so if you'll open whatever version of the Bible you have, this morning we will be in John chapter 18. And as you might guess, uh, because Christmas has come and gone, that means our Advent series is also over. Uh, right before Advent, we were working through the book of Ephesians, and our plan is to get back to Ephesians in the new year. But for this morning, we're going to be in John chapter 18, and we'll be examining what is needed for revival. We're talking about revival, what's needed for revival, which is probably a fitting thing for us to discuss uh, right before we all start making New Year's resolutions. Um, and I'll be reading this morning from the New American Standard Bible. Uh, I tell you that only because it's not the common version that we use. We normally use the English Standard Version. Uh, but the New American picks up on something in this text that's really helpful for us. Um, to give you a brief bit of backstory to the text, um, what we are going to see, or what uh, has just happened right before this, is Jesus has been brought to Pontius Pilate. Uh, he had just been tried by the Jews, and they found him guilty of blasphemy. And so they brought him to Pilate, the Roman governor. And Pilate said, uh, essentially, why are you here? And they responded, uh, well, if this man were not an evildoer, we wouldn't be bringing him to you. And Pilate tells them, I don't need to get involved in your religious disputes. You have a law, judge him by your own law. And they said, but we're not permitted to put anyone to death. See, the Romans had revoked their ability to carry out capital punishment. So if someone deserved capital punishment, they had to go through Rome to get it carried out. But again, the Romans were not interested in the internal religious disputes of the Jews. And so what the Jews needed to do, uh, they needed to charge Jesus with something that would also stick in Rome, something that would also be a problem to Rome. He needed to be a criminal, uh, that is, Jesus needed to be a criminal both to Rome and to Israel. So what was the charge that they came up with? They said he's made himself a king. Uh, in other words, he has set himself up against Caesar. He is a traitor to Rome. And that was a crime worthy of death. And so now in our text, Pilate has to determine if this is true. And so we pick up uh, in John chapter 18, starting in verse 33, and it should be great up on the screen. It says, therefore Pilate entered again into the praetorium and summoned Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, are you saying this of your own initiative or did others tell you about me? Pilate answered, I am not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priests delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. And therefore, Pilate said to him, so you are a king. And Jesus answered, you say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? 
And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I release someone for you at the Passover. Do you wish then that I release for you the king of the Jews? So they cried out again, saying, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, Our Father and God, we thank you for this word. You have spoken it to us today. We, uh, We ask that you would help us to heed Jesus' words here, that everyone who is of the truth hears his voice. Lord, would you then carry these words, these words of our Savior to our hearts and shape us by them that we might rightly be called people of the truth. We love you, our Father, and so we ask that you'd come and be with us and by your Spirit give us ears to receive in abundance today. May your words continue to plant and water the seeds of revival that we so desperately need. We ask this in the great name of Jesus. Amen. So, um, I said we're in John 18 because we want to look at what is needed for revival. As many of you know, uh, we've spent the last few months talking a lot about our vision and desires for us as a church. And the vision that we uh, have been pursuing is a revival of joyful worship that advances God's kingdom in every generation. That's what we're asking God for. But here's the thing, church. Uh, Revival is not a new idea. It's not a new desire. People have been wanting, needing revival ever since death started taking people. We've needed a restoration of life ever since death began taking it, which is to say ever since Adam and Eve were kicked out of the Garden of Eden. Right after Adam and Eve were kicked out of Eden, if you remember in Genesis 4, what happens? We get the story of Cain and Abel. Death happens. A man murders his brother. It's very clear a revival is needed there. But at the end of Genesis 4, something interesting happens. Eve has another son, Seth. There's new life. And it says, to Seth also was born a son, and they called his name Enosh. And at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. People began to call upon God there in Genesis 4. Right there is your first revival, a turning of the people to God. But how long did it last? It lasted one chapter. By Genesis 6, we see increased corruption on the earth, and we get the story of Noah and the flood. But that's how revivals often work. Some last a long time, some don't. If you remember what happened to the people of Israel when they were enslaved in Egypt, they turned to God. He heard them in their distress, and he delivered them. How long did their turn toward God last? It lasted only until they left Egypt. If you recall, they, uh, they had been delivered. They're walking out. Uh, God is leading them uh, with a pillar of cloud and fire. He's guiding them, and they get to the water of the Red Sea, and they look back, and they see Pharaoh and his army coming for them. And what do they say? They say, why did we leave Egypt? We had it so nice there. But God shows up, and he delivers them again. He parts the sea, and he leads them through it on dry ground. And then he collapses the water back in on Pharaoh and his army. And his people, God's people, are once again delivered. They are set free and they're elated and they sing. Revival breaks out. If you remember the scene, uh, did you ever see the movie The Prince of Egypt? Maybe some of you did. Uh, There's this great scene there. Um, where they've made it through the water, they're coming over the last crest, and there are children waving branches, and they're so excited, there are kids riding on their dad's shoulders, Uh, Moses is holding up his staff, and these kids come and jump on it, and they're swinging, and everything is beautiful. And they're uh, singing uh, in Hebrew, which I will not do for you, uh, but they sing, uh, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? 
Uh, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. Who is like you, majestic in holiness? In your love, you lead the people you redeemed. I will sing, I will sing, I will sing. That sounds like a revival. How long does it last? It lasted three days. So they went into the wilderness three days. So they crossed the Red Sea in Exodus 14. They're singing in Exodus 15. And at the end of chapter 15, they're grumbling because they don't have water. And so God makes the bitter water sweet. In Exodus 16, they grumble again because they don't have bread. And so God makes bread rain from the sky. In chapter 17, they're grumbling because once again, they need water. And so God brings it out of a rock. And every time they say to Moses, why did you bring us out of Egypt? We had it so much better back there. Did you bring us out here to kill us and our children? Now, this is not just an Old Testament thing. Let's uh, uh, not forget the book of Hebrews. Uh, in the New Testament, it was written to a people who were departing from their Christian faith. And they were going back to what they knew before. They had heard the message of the Son of God coming into the world to save people from sin to fulfill all the prophecies they had been taught, how he was sacrificed, how he was raised from the dead and ascended into heaven, and still they were thinking, we had it better back there. Let's go back to the old way. In Revelation 2, the church in Ephesus is rebuked because they had abandoned the love they had at first. And John writes to them and says, remember where God brought you. Repent and come back. They needed to come back. They needed a revival. None of this should be surprising. Revival means a restoration of life. We would need that only because that means at one point it was taken. We lost it. What did God tell Adam and Eve? What happened on the day they ate of the tree? They would surely die. So since that time, a restoration of life has been needed, and we see all of these little revivals, these jolts of life throughout the Scripture. We saw it in Genesis 4. We see it through the story of Exodus. And those revivals weren't fake. They were real. They genuinely called on the name of the Lord. The church in Ephesus genuinely loved God and then abandoned that love. And so John calls them back. He called them back to revival. And now, church, we need the same call. We need a revival. We don't need a three-day revival. We need a revival that uh, the effects of which are felt for centuries. But how does it happen? How does revival happen? We've told you many times, we cannot manufacture revival. Revival is something that God has to bring. We cannot manufacture it, but that doesn't mean we can't pursue it. We may not be able to bring the fire. That doesn't mean we can't set up the logs and douse them with lighter fluid and get everything ready for the moment when God gives the spark to ignite a massive white-hot revival. We can pursue revival. And church, we can also hinder revival. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a pastor in England who died in the 80s. And while he was pastoring, he preached a series on revival. And in that series, he spoke about hindrances to revival, things that would prevent revival. And one of the hindrances he examined is what he called dead orthodoxy. Dead orthodoxy. And I believe this is something that we need to consider as well. And our call to revival we need to be called away from dead orthodoxy. Dead orthodoxy means knowing the right doctrine, but not actually believing it, not trusting in it. It's a faithless orthodoxy. Everyone in the world has an orthodoxy, a set of beliefs that they believe and that they live by. And Lloyd-Jones makes the point that even with the right beliefs, 
even with Christian beliefs, the right doctrine, it can still be a dead orthodoxy. If you want examples of dead orthodoxy, you can look at the Pharisees. They were the religious experts of their day. They knew God's written word backward and forward, and yet they totally missed the right interpretation. They missed it when it was standing right in front of them, and they killed the one who all their doctrine pointed at. But we do this too. We know all about Jesus paying for sin, the freedom that we're supposed to have, the peace of God that surpasses understanding, and yet many of us don't have those things. Why not? Dead orthodoxy. We know what Jesus did, and we don't believe it. We doubt it, which often leads us to misapply our doctrine. Uh, I was at a church once uh, helping hand out food to people in need, and I overheard uh, a man talking with his wife. He had just gotten some bags of food, and he was there with his wife arguing about something that he had lost. And when his wife asked him, how how could you lose it? Uh, His answer was, God must hate me. God must hate me. He had food in his hands that he didn't buy, that he didn't earn. He missed the kindness of God when it was in his hands, and instead he interpreted his circumstances to mean God must hate him. We often wonder why we're going through hard things, and our answer is to get superstitious. We wonder if God is punishing us, or we start to worry about karma and luck. We quit believing in grace or in God's goodness and faithfulness, and we begin to look at ourselves and say, I'm going through all of these terrible trials, and I don't have peace. I'm not supposed to be anxious, but I'm anxious about everything. I'm anxious about dinner, about family, about traffic, about money. That must mean I either don't believe any of this stuff, or God is mad at me, or that I am so messed up, so broken. And we quit believing in the faithfulness of God. We quit believing in grace. We consider ourselves hopeless. That is a sign of dead orthodoxy. Orthodoxy in need of revival, and it happens when we see the world through a biblical lens, but our understanding is void of faith. Dead orthodoxy happens when we see the world through a biblical lens, but our understanding is void of faith. And church, when that happens, we need to learn the lessons that God has left for us in creation. Uh, If you aren't believing your own doctrine, if your sin is weighing you down, you find yourself with serious doubts about the goodness or faithfulness of God, I would ask you this question. When do you not cast a shadow? When do you not cast a shadow? Only when the sun is at its highest point, but it takes time for the sun to rise. When you put a seed in the ground, is it instantly a tree? No, it takes time. When a log is lit on fire, is the whole thing suddenly smoldering? No. The fire can start in one spot and the rest of the log be quite cold. It takes time, but the fire will get there. The seed will become a tree. The sun will reach its highest point and banish darkness. Jesus Christ came as the light of the world, but the world isn't full of light, is it? Is that because he failed? No. It's because it takes time. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that grows into a great tree, like yeast that in time works its way through the lump of dough. It takes time, especially when you're working with difficult material. In church, God chose to shine the light of his grace in and through us, and we are difficult material. It takes time for light to reach the dark corners of the world when it also has to reach the dark corners of our hearts. 
It's slow and progress is hard. Revivals aren't easy. They aren't times when people suddenly become super sanctified. They are not a way to microwave your sanctification. Revivals happen when people turn to God in faith. The great example of that is the Protestant Reformation. It was not an explosion of sanctification, but it was an explosion of faith. It was a great revival of faithful orthodoxy, living orthodoxy, and its impact has lasted for the last 500 years. But it is also quickly fading, and the orthodoxy of the West is in danger of becoming a dead orthodoxy. And so for that reason, church, we are asking God to bring another revival. We want to be revived. We want God's church to be revived. We want revival for our neighbors, for our countrymen. We want revival because we believe that all the world was designed to submit to God and that it will be better when it does. We will be better, more like Jesus, when we submit more to God. That's why we want revival. We want more of God for us and for the world. So what do we do about our dead orthodoxy? How does it become alive? How can we have a living orthodoxy? The answer is we need three things. We need a living truth, a living authority, and a living joy. Living truth, living authority, and living joy. So let's look at that. The first thing we need is a living truth. Now when I say living, I do not mean changeable. People argue about whether the Constitution is a living document, which means it's editable, it's changeable, its meaning evolves over time. I don't mean that kind of living. Uh, by living, I mean lasting, firm, unchanging, enduring forever. At one time, it would have been true to say that Babylon is a great power. It's no longer true to say that. We can say it was a great power, but what happened? It died. We need a truth that lives, that remains. Jesus says in our text, for this I have been born, for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Now the first thing we need to see here is that Jesus is telling us that truth exists. Truth exists, and that is not a popular view today. <clears throat> today, the West has largely abandoned truth because we don't like its implications. We in the West believe we ought to be able to change what we don't like. That's why people say things like, I was born in the wrong body. Never mind biological science. Church, if God reigns over everything, there's no such thing as being born in the wrong body. God does not make mistakes. But the West has lost its foundation. We don't know what's true. Truth, uh, to many people, does not have to correspond to reality. It only has to cohere with our feelings. That's why people talk about your truth, my truth. That's true for you. The church, that's nonsense. My son learned this lesson the other day. He learned a true lesson. My son saw a neighborhood cat, and he decided to approach it. He could not have articulated this, but he was operating off an assumption that random cats can be trusted. He believed that to be true, and he found out it wasn't. And the cat scratched him. He learned something, that truth has to correspond with reality, not whatever he thinks. A friend of mine recently told me about an experience he had getting his hair cut. He was sharing the gospel with the barber, and the barber said, I'm glad that's true for you. And my friend had the fortitude to ask, what do you mean by that? And the barber told him, I don't believe in fixed truths. And so I asked my friend, 
did you ask the barber if that applies to the cost of your haircut? Well, you say it costs $20. It's fixed at $20. I don't believe in fixed truths. I will give you $5. Right? Everybody believes truth exists. We just don't like the implications of it. That's why Romans 1 says that we suppress the truth. But Jesus said he came to testify to the truth. And Pilate asked him, what is truth? I really wish Pilate had stayed around a little longer to listen to the answer to that question because Jesus had answered that question already. What is truth? He said in John 14, I am the way and the truth. Jesus came to testify to the truth and he is the truth. What does that mean? I can say all kinds of true things about me. I am Andrew. I have shoes. I am preaching. But I cannot say that I am the truth. Jesus said, I am the truth. Truth exists, church, because God exists. If God didn't exist, nothing else would either. There would be no truth because there would be no thing. So what is the most basic truth? Hebrews 11 says, to please God, we must first believe he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. The most basic truth is that God is. God is the most basic truth. And as a direct follow-up to his existence, we have to know him. We have to seek him. Those two have to go together. Dead orthodoxy is like believing God exists and not seeking him out. If we know God exists, it is necessary for us to explore it, to understand God. But here's the challenge to understanding God. We're trying to do it from within the system. From within the system God created and he's outside the system. It would be like a baby in its mother's womb uh, trying to give the mom directions while she drives. Uh, mom, I think you should go straight for another quarter mile and then take the exit on your right. But that's, that's ridiculous. The baby doesn't even know what a car is or a road or left or right. We're just like that. We are characters within a story trying to relate to our author. John 1 says the world was made through Jesus. He is the author of it. Hebrews 12 says he is the author of faith. He is the author, and he has come to us. That's what we just celebrated at Christmas. Christ came. God revealed himself to the world, to the creation. When he says, I am the truth, he's saying, I am the most basic thing you need to know. If you want to know God, if you want to relate to God, I am how. I am the way. No one comes to the Father except by me. If you want to seek God, to know him, he's the way. Now here's the question. Jesus says he's the truth, but we need a living truth, church, a truth that lasts. Is Jesus a living truth? If you remember, he is, in our text, on trial and threatened with execution. Can he be a living truth, a lasting and abiding truth? And the answer is, oh yes. Yes, Pilate did eventually give the order to have Jesus killed, but death could not conquer the author of life. First Peter uh, says that God caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ from the dead. The author of life was put to death and he got back up. Jesus Christ is alive. The author of creation who entered into his creation was put to death by it but could not be contained within it. 
Do you remember the story of Nicodemus? He understood this. Jesus told him, you have to be born again. And he started trying to figure out the mechanics of how does a grown man get back into his mother's womb. He knew it was not possible. The womb couldn't hold him. But that's what creation attempted to do to Jesus, to put the author of creation to death within it. They put Jesus into a tomb hewn out of a rock. But church, what is a tomb hewn out of a rock to the author of rocks? They put the author of life to death only to discover that death had no authority over him. The Lord of life was put to death and death broke. It overloaded the system. Death could not contain life and so it broke and life burst out. It would be like trying to put a massive explosive into a clay pot and assuming the pot could contain the blast. It had no choice but to burst. And what had been put within came out in power. The Lord Jesus emerged from death, victorious, alive, with power, forever. He is, church, our living truth. He was steadfast all the way to death, through death, and since death. He is alive. Now, what does that truth do for us? Why do we need it? Think about it this way. What does two plus two equal? Thank you, four. Have you ever gone to bed in fear, anxiously wondering whether two plus two would still equal four tomorrow? Have you ever agonized over that? I doubt it. Why? Because that's settled truth to us. We know that two plus two, two, plus two equals four, and we live in a world where that is sure not to change. That is why we don't have to go to bed in fear, wondering if two plus two will equal five tomorrow. It never will. We are grounded firmly in that truth. What if you could go to bed just as certain of God's love for you as you are certain that two plus two is four? So convinced that God loves you and everything he does is for your good. Being as sure of that as you are of basic math. What if you could go to bed convinced that your sin had been paid for and you didn't have to fear anything that tomorrow may bring because your eternity is secured by an unchanging God, by a living and abiding truth? Having a living and abiding truth would mean you would never have to fear tomorrow's uncertainty. Jesus Christ offers you that. He is the truth upon which creation itself is built, and he is the only truth firm enough for you to build your life upon. He is what we need to know. In our house, Whitley and I remind each other, hey, two plus two. That's our way of saying, remember God loves you. Rest assured in that it is as certain as two plus two. Another effect of having a living truth uh, will be on our view of the Bible. We believe this book is true because the spirit of truth wrote it. The spirit of Jesus Christ wrote this book. If you want to know the truth, if you want to know God, you have to know what he says. Many people uh, desire to hear something from God and still miss the Bible. But church, God wrote us a massive book of letters, things he wants us to know about and not skip over, but too often we do. It's, it would be like a soldier at war wanting to receive good news from back home, and despite his tent being filled with letters from home, he sits there wondering when something will come. Just like the Jews and Pilate, the truth the truth is right in front of us and we miss it because of dead orthodoxy. 
We need God to help us to reveal the truth to us through the word, to help us know the point of this book, which is the Lord Jesus. So for a living orthodoxy, we need a living truth, something we can forever point to that does not change, something that firmly grounds us and frees us from the fear of the unknown. This book will tell us all about it, and we need to ask the spirit of truth to help us understand it. Now, along with a living truth, we also need a living authority. This is hard as individuals and especially as Americans. We don't like authority. But church, authority is inescapable. Created beings will have authority as sure as children will come from parents. Creatures will have authority. It is in our nature as creatures because we have a creator who is our cosmic authority. Businesses will have presidents or CEOs. There will be executives. There will be leaders. Churches will have elders. Families will have parents. Authority is inescapable. And children very clearly understand this. Authority matters to them. That's why as they grow up, they love to ask the question, why? In our house, our son is not allowed to ask why until he says yes. We'll say something like, Theo, please take your plate to the sink. And he'll say, why? He's questioning the authority. And we say, try that again. <laughs> because we want him to obey and then ask why. We want him to acknowledge the authority over him and then ask. It's also why when we uh, teach him what he can and cannot do, uh, we don't say, because I said so. It's very tempting to do that, to say, because I said so. But it's actually more effective to say, what does God say? And so when uh, Theo hits his brother or something, we'll say, Theodore, what does God say? And he tells us, he says, let all you do be done in love. We say, that's right. Are you loving your brother? And he says, no. <laughs> he understands. God has authority. So you also see this when you watch kids play on the playground because they love to ask, who says? One child says, let's do this, and another child says, who says? That's an authority question. I remember once I was, uh, I was playing bicycle tag. So you're just riding a bike instead of running. I was playing bicycle tag, um, and I was riding a bike that was too big for me. Uh, and at one point I had stopped because I was just having a hard time riding, and so I got off the bike, and almost immediately I looked back, and there's the boy who's chasing me. He's coming down the street, and I did not have time to get back up on my bike and try to pedal away. I was a sitting duck. Uh, and when he got to me, I did not want to be it. Uh, and so I said, I have to go. And he said, why? Who says? And I said, I hear my dad calling me. Now, I was lying. That's not true. I did not hear my dad calling me. I didn't want to be it, and so I came up with an excuse, but I knew instinctively all I had to do was invoke the right authority. This is why schools require doctor's notes, because they have authority to excuse you. They understand that authority matters. If mom or dad or teacher or doctor gives an order, then okay, we will comply. Authority matters, and everybody has one. But church, we need a living authority. We especially need it right now as we're entering 2020 and people are already getting very excited because it's an election year and the balance of authority in our country can shift one way or the other. 
but we need an authority that does not shift every two to four years. We need an authority that persists, that doesn't change, that lasts forever. Now, where do we find that authority in our text? Uh, Verse 36, Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews, but as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Therefore, Pilate said to him, so you are a king. And Jesus answered, you say correctly that I am a king. I read statements like that and chills go down my back because without any fear of the man in front of him, without any fear of Pilate, Jesus stands there and says, you say correctly that I am a king. He does the same thing when he's on trial in front of the Pharisees. They have him there and they say, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And he says, I am. And you will see the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. That is why they found him guilty of blasphemy. Church, he is humble, but he is the king. He is the king of the Jews. He was Caesar's king. He is our king. Now here's something interesting for us to consider. Jesus said his kingdom isn't of this world. If it were, his servants would be fighting. Does that mean God's kingdom is just a spiritual reality? that it won't actually impact this physical reality? If so, why are we asking for this revival stuff? But church, it doesn't mean that at all. It means the source of Jesus' authority is not found on earth. In Matthew 28, Jesus says, all authority, <clears throat> all, author- excuse me. <clears throat> all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Who is capable of giving all authority to Jesus, the God of heaven? Where does his authority come from? It comes from heaven, but where is it expressed? It is expressed everywhere. If we make it to Mars, his authority needs to be expressed on Mars. His kingdom is not of this world, but it is in this world. It broke through at Christmas and it is invincible. He is our living authority. He is our king. And church, what is our king currently busy doing? 1 Corinthians 15 says he must reign until he has put every enemy under his feet. What is he doing? He's conquering his enemies. He's doing what a king does. He's conquering the dark parts of you and me that still wage war against him. He's conquering the dark parts of the world that still wage war against him. So what should we do? Well, we should call one another, we should call the world to surrender. Say, he's already won, folks. No, no need to fight, lay your weapons down, just come along quietly, it's just a matter of time. As creatures, we require a living authority. And the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth has invited us to cease fighting and to instead be welcome as members of his kingdom, as his own family. Living orthodoxy looks like kingdom living where we know the truth and we live according to it. We acknowledge our king's authority and we gladly submit to it. Jesus fearlessly submitted to the unjust authority of the Jews and the Romans and he was put to death by them. And the result was that God justly raised him up and seated him on a throne to rule over those unjust authorities. And that's what the Bible says will happen that every knee will bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That doesn't mean that they'll necessarily be happy about it, but they will see that he is the authority of the world. When you have a living authority church, it allows you to do two things. It allows you to live and die without fear, and it allows you to laugh 
at your enemies. Psalm 2 says God laughs at his enemies. Right now, God is laughing at the communist leadership of China. The Chinese government recently decreed that the Bible had to be rewritten. Do you know this? It had to be rewritten to reflect communist ideology, and God laughs at the Chinese government because it believes it has authority to do that. There's a pastor in China who also laughed at the government's, uh, at the government's authority. Uh, they ordered churches to stop preaching the truth. He refused to listen, and he continued to preach, and he was recently uh, arrested and put in prison. But he laughed all the way because he knew who his authority was. Having a living authority allows you to live and die without fear, and it allows you to laugh at your enemies. When Jesus was on trial, his disciples abandoned him. They were afraid. They didn't understand his authority. But after he rose from the dead, what did they do? They realized who he truly was, and they submitted themselves to their king, and all but one of them died for their faith. They knew that Jesus was not only the king, but that he had resurrection in his tool belt. He really had come to destroy death, which meant they had nothing to fear. Jesus is Lord, church. That is not just a title. Jesus is not king of earth the way Queen Elizabeth is queen of England. He is not a figurehead. What he says goes, what he decrees comes to pass. He is our living authority. Now, lastly, to avoid dead orthodoxy and the pursuit of a living orthodoxy, we need a living joy. Why is that the case? What role does joy play in human life? Well, church, let me tell you, it's a vital role. Everyone is interested in joy. Just like authority is inescapable, the pursuit of joy is inescapable. We know that because no one does anything that they don't want to do. We are all pursuing joy. People are only willing to do what they most want to do. And you may say, well, that seems crazy. I don't, uh, I don't want to change dirty diapers. Uh, I don't want to pay taxes, but I'm willing to do it. That's right because you'd rather pay those taxes than face the consequences of not paying them. You'd rather pay your tax than face armed government agents at your door. You'd rather change the dirty diaper than endure the consequences of not changing it and what happens then to your house. I don't like exercising, but I'd rather exercise and try to stay somewhat healthy than be unable to play with my kids. No one does anything they don't want to do. And that was even the case for Christ himself. How so, you may ask? Because in our text, it doesn't look like he's in a place he wants to be. He had been arrested, betrayed. He's standing before a man who we know is going to put him to death, and that's all true. But why did he do it? What drove him there? Hebrews 12, 2 says, Looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Why was Jesus willing to be put to death? Because he too had a living joy. He died for the joy that was set before him, the joy that was coming to him. If there is no joy in Jesus' church, we would not follow him. But we learn that with Jesus, in his presence, there is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore, Psalm 16. Joy is not an add-on to the Christian life. It is an essential part of it. Dead orthodoxy would be joyless orthodoxy. We must have a living joy and the only joy that lives, that endures forever, is found in Jesus. Again, we just celebrated this at Christmas. Ho hopefully you got something that you wanted. 
And when you opened it, I'm guessing you were pretty happy about it. Well, church, God gave us an eternal Christmas gift that can provide joy forever. If you are not finding joy in Jesus, I really would love to talk to you. And I will try to show you and help you see where joy can be found. We'll talk again about the good news of the gospel that God gave you your most needed gift, the gift of righteousness, so that your sin no longer separates you from God. Once you despised God and the aim of his wrath was set on you, but in an act of unmerited, unexplainable kindness, God chose to love us. He chose to love you. We deserved nothing but destruction, but God sent forth his son to be destroyed for you. Not only that, he has made us his children, heirs of his kingdom. He's promised to destroy every smidge of darkness within us so that we can be full of his light. God aim is now to make a, God's aim is now to make us just like him. Our aim was destruction, but God refused to let us go that way. Your sin is taken away. Your guilt is atoned for. You are welcome with God, and he is preparing a place for you. You are loved by the reigning authority of everything, and he's promised you that he will make sure that everything works out for your good. There is unending reason to find joy in God. Jesus Christ is full of joy, and he said he came so that our joy may also be full. My son often asks me if I'm happy, and he usually asks me this once he's, right after he's disobeyed, um, and sometimes I'm not happy. Uh, I'm frustrated, but I always answer the same way. He says, Daddy, are you happy? And I say, I'm always joyful. I may not be happy with what you did, but I'm always joyful. Church, we must have a living joy a joy that can endure through anything. There's a wonderful hymn called Through the Love of God Our Savior. Um, and I'm just gonna read you the last verse of it. It says, we expect a bright tomorrow, all will be well. Faith can sing through days of sorrow, all, all is well. On our Father's love relying, Jesus every need supplying. In our living, in our dying, all must be well. Our living joy can sing through sorrow. It can sing through death because it has beaten them all. And now it sits atop heaven's throne and it can never be shaken. Church, what's the alternative? What's the alternative to a living orthodoxy? It is a dead orthodoxy. It's seeing the truth right in front of you and still choosing the lesser. Still choosing something else. It's joining the Pharisees and saying, not this man, give us Barabbas. And our text says, now Barabbas was a robber. And everything that we try to find joy in apart from Jesus will be that same thing for us. It will rob us. When Jesus stood with Barabbas right next to him and the mob shouted, give us Barabbas, they forsook their king and gave themselves to robbers. When we choose anything over Jesus, we can be sure of two things, that we have not chosen the path to joy and that we have instead chosen to be robbed of our joy. Apart from Jesus, possessions will rob you, pleasures will rob you, family will rob you. They will never satisfy you. Only a living orthodoxy informed by a living truth submitted to a living authority and filled with a living joy, only that is able to satisfy you. And the only place you can find that is in Jesus Christ. If we want revival, 
If we want true life in Jesus, we need a living orthodoxy. Again, everyone has an orthodoxy, a system of principles that guide their life, but we can say, ah, yes, but is your orthodoxy alive? Is it founded upon the invincible Son of God, the author of life, the giver of immortal gladness, the ruler of the cosmos? He is the truth. He is the authority. He is our joy and church. He is alive forever. Our Father in God, we thank you for your word. We praise you as the ruler of everything. We rejoice to know that you have given all authority to your son and he has become our Lord and brother. He is your message of truth and in him we can find a living orthodoxy. Oh Lord, would you be pleased to work that living orthodoxy in us and may it be the kindling of a great revival. We pray these things in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.